It's good to be together today to sing those wonderful praises. We actually will finish the book of Joel. This is our sixth message in this book. And um, we do preach through books of the Bible. For those of you who are visiting with us, we believe that's the best way to gain understanding of the Word of God. And the title of the message today is Judgment in the Valley of Decision. Judgment is not a very pleasant pleasant topic. Some of our hymns have already we've been singing about that judgment. When we understand that for those of us who are in Christ, that judgment upon the enemies of God's people is at the same time rescue and deliverance and salvation for those that fear God. The Bible teaches that God's character demands that justice be done. To do so, we must address this attribute of the justice of God. It is a holy justice. In other words, it's, it's, it's tempered and directed by the very purity and holiness of God. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Suppose that God at once blotted your sin from his book, and that was the end of it. What peace would that give you? And this, this part right here. A God who could pardon without justice might one of these days condemn without reason. He could set aside his law so as not to execute his threatenings, might one day set aside his gospel so as not to fulfill his promise. Now we know that 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 justice was meted out on the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can have assurance of our salvation. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And so what Spurgeon says here is that a a God that willy-nilly pardons today could very easily condemn the next day. Psalmist says, the Lord loves justice. Truth be told, in reality, judgment and hell has fallen on hard times. Um, Even some of the Barna surveys, one uh, that I found, 76% of people say they believe in heaven. About 70% say they believe in hell, but then they say that Only 30% of those 70 would say that they think it's a place of torment. And it's an irony because people speak of hell and use it, you know, what the, you know what, and all of this. But in reality, deep down, everybody knows they're going to stand before, they're going to have some day of reckoning, right? Every major religion communicates that very message be it Islam, be it the Hindus, all of that, that there will come some day of reckoning. Few people think that judgment, in a negative sense, will fall upon them. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, has a sermon called The Vain Self-Flatteries of the Sinner. He gives several points there, one being that eternity is a far way off. Why concern myself today for that? But this one, I think, found interesting. Some flatter themselves with a secret hope that there is no such thing as another world. They hear a great deal of preaching, a great deal of talk about hell and eternal judgment, but those things do not seem to be real to them. Now, remember I said 30% believe that hell is a place of torment, and yet when the, the same survey was given, do you expect to be in hell only one half of 1% answered in the affirmative, and one in 200 people. So we did read this passage. It's a lengthy passage. It's an ambitious task that we have before us to 
to tackle all of Joel 3, um, but I think we can do it with God's help. And so I had verses 9 to the end of the chapter read, so what, we, what I'll do is read verses 1 to 8, and I'll reread certain sections as we go through it. So follow along with me, Joel 3, reading from the New American Standard. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They also have cast lots for my people. They've traded a boy for a harlot, and they sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering to me recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold and brought my precious treasures into your temples and sold your sons of Judah, sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from the territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense upon your head. Also, I will sell your sons and daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, that they may sell them to the Sabinians, uh, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your infallible, perfect, Word, your revelation, the 66 books of the Holy Bible. We thank you for the blood of those who sought to preserve it throughout the centuries. We thank you that it can be 100% trusted and relied on, that it is completely God-breathed. And Lord, even as we come to this chapter, maybe even this book would be easily to just pass over and to maybe focus on other types of chapters and books. And yet, Lord, this is part of your word. It is God-breathed. And so give us clear understanding, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that we would realize there is going to come a day when we will stand before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You remember chapter 1 describes a utter and complete devastation of a locust plague, a real locust plague that probably went on for a couple of years It it turned the economy upside down. It shut down the economy. It was an enormous trial. And then the beginning of chapter 2, there's illusions that, that, but the day will come, something future that's pointing to the day of the Lord, like the devastation of chapter 1 of the locust. But then there's a call to repentance. And chapter 2 and verse 18 is a turning point. The people have repentant. And what we see is God's great response to a broken and penitent people. And last week we saw that outpouring of the Holy Spirit in verse 28, that that is coming upon all who fear the Lord. The text specifically erases all the major social distinctions of the ancient world because it was men and the landowners who ruled society and who had all of these blessings. But all of that is removed. It even says, look at this, I will pour out my spirit on mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions. 
even on the male and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The whole Christian community in the book of Acts and the new covenant right after Christ's ascension were filled with the spirit. They're given tongues of fire, as it were. And and the Spirit had come upon them, and Peter delivers that incredible Pentecost sermon, a very powerful sermon, which, by the way, he's just exegeting God's Word from the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 16 at length, and lo and behold, he quotes uh, Joel chapter 2 and expounds that. And and, and this this communication, I'll display wonders in the sky, I'll pour out my Spirit, and, and all of these types of things point to a new age has come. The pouring out of the Spirit in the, in the beginning of the, the New Covenant in the New Testament era and the second coming of Christ are two huge events. And so Joel, remember we said the prophetic um, perspective, as he sees one mountain, but then he sees another one beyond that and yet another one beyond that. And so you've got the idea of the immediate fulfillment and restoration given to his people of his day, you got the outpouring of the Spirit, and then you have the second coming of Christ. So it's really the already and the not yet, that eschatological perspective that we must have. God's justice motivates judgment. So we're going to look at this text, the whole chapter, under three uh, main points. The first is the Lord will judge the oppressors of God's people. That's what I just read, verses. 1 to 8. The second is a 9 to 17 that's a proclamation of God's judgment. And then the last little section, 18 to 21, is a consolation of judgment. So let's let's unpack this text for us. We see in verses 1 and 2, the nations are gathered for judgment. There's almost like a a courtroom scene, a, a legal type of scene. You know, these types of shows are very popular on television and cable networks and I don't even know the name of them. I don't watch, um, I've rarely watched any of them. But, you know, it's the courtroom scene. It's the intensity. And and what's happening here in verses 1 and 2 is that the accused are summoned to come. Right? That's what you see here. For behold, in those days and at that time, I'll restore the fortunes. I will gather all the nations. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Just looking at that first first sentence, behold, it's an interjection, meaning to take note of. It, it, it communicates strong feelings and, of hope and expectation. He says, in those days, that's yet future days, in those days. And then even the phrase at that time is something that many of the prophets use. It occurs in other prophecies of speaking of the time of the end of the age when God will move mightily on behalf of his chosen and blood-bought people. Just one example, Jeremiah 33 and verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Teaching about the end times provides an opportunity to bring pastoral assurance to a suffering and oppressed people that God will someday correct all the wrongs, will bring righteousness to the earth. In verse 2, you see that there's an indication of, of Yahweh's covenant care on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. 
he enters into judgment on their behalf. The passage, as it were, has a heartbeat throbbing towards this idea of God's grievousness over the injustice and mistreatment of his people. A similar passage is what JT read to us in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, which we will come back to shortly. So where will the nations be gathered for judgment? What does it say? Verse 2, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, get your ESV study Bible, go back and look at the maps, try to look it up in a Bible dictionary. There's no such real place as this valley. Furthermore, is there a valley anywhere in the world that could contain all of the nations throughout all of the centuries? This is figurative speaking, and literally what it means is Yahweh judges. So he's using this metaphor of a valley, but it's Yahweh judges. God's perfect and holy justice demands that the nations be punished because of their mistreatment of God's people. Even later, I believe the book's written before the Babylonian captivity, but you have these other um, enemies of God's people, Assyria and Babylon and all of that. Those nations will be, will be included um, in this divine version of the Nuremberg trials. You remember the Nuremberg trials? At the end of World War II, the Nazi war criminals were brought to justice. Here you have a divine version of Yahweh and Almighty God calling all of the nations to the divine trial in the valley of decision. Second subpoint, they, they have engaged in disgusting inhumanity against children. Again, here in the courtroom scene, not only are they summoned, now the accusations are read. Look at it in verse 3. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. That's just an incredible thing. Let that sink in. A complete disregard for children. My pleasure rises up higher than my care and concern for children. One of the commentators, Dillard, develops this idea that the gravity of the transgressions of the nation against Judah is measured by the Lord's great redemption. God provided for His people. He brought them out of slavery. He gave them the land, and essentially what the nations are doing is the very opposite of that. They're trying to put them back into slavery, driving them out of the land, and undoing the redemptive work of God. You want to know how you can judge any society, any nation in the world? It's measured by their treatment of children. Of children. The defenseless ones. The, that's why God had so many provisions in, in the very law of God to protect the widows and the orphans, that the children are to be valued. It's one of the reasons why we feel passionately as a church to see abortion abolished, not modified or anything. We want to see it ended. And by the way, in Capitol Hill, your government and Washington, D.C., has had some hearings on abortion rights since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And they're bringing in the Ivy League professionals, you know, the ones that are, you know, at Berkeley and Yale and all of them, uh, ones that, <laughs> that have no ounce of morality in them. 
They can't even describe when life begins. These are the experts. One particular one that I watched in exchange with is a Berkeley law professor, um, Mrs. Bridge. And she was asked by a congressman, um, do you believe a baby has value? She paused, thought for a while, said, yes. And then says, do you think that a baby not yet born has value? This is her answer. I believe that a person with the capacity of pregnancy has value, intelligence, and agency. You know what capacity of pregnancy means, right? It's women, it's transsexual, and it's non-binary people. Then she was asked, do you think a baby that the day before it's to be born has value? And she proceeded to say, those people, the person with the capacity of pregnancy, should have the decision of what happens to their lives. In other words, it has nothing to do with the life inside the womb. It has everything to do with my comforts and what I want. Wickedness and fantaside. Verses 48, the nations have mistreated God's covenant people. You really have something of a verdict being announced uh, here with the nations. Um, Relatively small nations, Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia. That's another reason Assyria and Babylon aren't mentioned. That's why I tend to put the date, which we we really know nothing about Joel, and the date, there's several different ideas, probably around 900 B.C. But the oracle begins with an angry challenge and warns that they will answer to Yahweh. He would see that the tables would be turned for their crimes against Judah. I'm reminded of that parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25. We're we're all familiar with it, where he says this, then he will also say to those on his left, it's separation of the sheep and the goats, right? The goats are on the left. He'll say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, until one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Verse 5, they're charged with looting the, the temple treasury and stealing, really, like the precious belongings and bringing it to their own temples for their own devious ends. And also this idea they sold the sons of Judah to the Greeks in order to remove them far from the territory. So, really, this whole section here, what you have here is a, a summons to judgment. We sing this beautiful hymn sometimes, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. John Newton penned that. It's 319 in our our Trinity hymnal. Hark the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders, shakes the vast creation around. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. Verses 7 and 8, God is saying, I'm going to arouse this place, I'm going to return your recompense upon your head. The Lord will avenge his people. The crimes committed against his people were at the end of the day, crimes committed against Yahweh himself. 
You mess with my people, you're messing with me. Fathers, we feel that way, don't we, about our children, you know, when they're persecuted, picked on, or whatever. You're, 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 you're doing something to my child, you're, you're going to have to contend with me. And that's the way God uh, uh, thinks about his people. And I love the way the end, the end of verse 8 uh, ends is, For the Lord has spoken. Leslie Allen, one of the uh, commentators, says, uh, The Lord has spoken functions like a closing signature to a document, endorsing the authority and certainty of the message that has gone before. Well, how, does, uh, how will this be fulfilled and when? How will the nations be singled out for judgment? Is it, it sounds like there's only these few small nations, Tyre and Sidon, which were up to the north in the Philistia area. Are we in the last days to be looking for like these nations, they don't, they don't exist anymore, to, to rise back up as an end-time sign? No, of course not. It just as that locust invasion was symbolic for what's coming in the day of the Lord and his fierce judgment, these nations are symbolic for the oppressors of God's people throughout all the ages. Is God's concern only for the Jewish nation, the Jewish people? No. In the new covenant, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. We talked about that at length last week with the outpouring of the Spirit upon all mankind that fear Him. We are all, all believers are children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith that are the sons of Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, you are a spiritual descendant. You may not have Jewish blood going through your veins. You're a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Peter makes these, speaks of the promises that were given to the Jews and takes those and turns around and applies them to the church of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that when you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God will take vengeance on his enemies. Just as assuredly as God is judged, uh, the, the plunders those who had stolen from the, the temple treasury, so he will judge any who persecute his people. And by the way, the persecuted church is alive and well today, right? There are nations that are hell-bent, I guess we could say, on destroying Christianity, on persecuting those that would take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the one true God on their lips. Millions have been martyred of Christians since the early church. Now I'd like to ask you to turn back to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writing this second letter, most think just about six months after the first letter. And what I want to draw our attention to is verses Six to eight, six to nine. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
Do you see how that just matches our text right here? You persecute God's people, it is right. God's righteous judgment to then repay and afflict those, verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. Do you see how judgment, it brings rescue and salvation as we find God as a refuge and strength, while at the same time, it's judgment and returning affliction upon the enemies of God. To bring relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those that do not know God and to those that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Very sobering text here. John Calvin says the afflictions of the church will not go unpunished. So to the degree that we're persecuted in our United States context, being heckled, having Antifa come up and body check or whatever, um, doing little things, um, which even happened yesterday that I won't bring up, but it, um, these types of things, we know that God has our back, right? It may not be immediate, but he will correct in due course. How is the United States believe it or not, the Christian nation, right? Uh, supposedly. How, been hostile towards Christians. Just think of the last few decades. The erosion of family values, the deconstruction of what a marriage is, Christian businesses being sued because they won't do things that violate their conscience, Christian schools trying to be silenced, public schools seeking to indoctrinate children with the LGBTQ agenda instead of actually providing real education. Even the wicked government in these last couple years trying to silence voices of truth. Even the COVID restriction as tyrannical government leaders said, you may not sing, you may not meet as a church, you will obey me, the big governor, the whatever, you know, it might be. Wickedness against God's agenda. The overturning of Roe v. Wade was a surprise. It was unexpected on the one hand, but now we see the extreme backlash against it. There's a push now more than ever to just slaughter the unborn, pass, pass it in the Senate so it's legal in all states, all the way up until birth. That's what they're trying to do right now. We are told it's the church and God's people to rescue those who are oppressed and, and lead them back out of destruction. We have a huge calling as a church and the bride of Christ. So, verses 1 to 8, the nations gathered more briefly, our next two points, the proclamation and preparation of God's judgment. We see the character of God's judgment. Look at verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. The Lord challenges the nations to war. You see this? He's challenging them to war. It's kind of like the old westerns. I don't think people watch westerns anymore, but you know, I challenge you to a duel. Let's go to the OK Corral, you know. And it's, so God is challenging the nations to come. You even gather all of your soldiers. And this, by the way, is a holy war. 
The word that's translated in the NAS here, uh, prepare, is uh, consecrate in the ESV. It's prepare in the New English translation and the NAS. But the word, it's the same word that's used for sanctification, setting apart. And so even you take that nuance for it. Oh, well, set apart this war. Rouse your mighty men. Bring them on type of thing. Ancient war was often thought of in the sense of um, our gods will challenge your gods. You see this developed in uh, 1 Kings uh, with the prophet Elijah, uh, Mount Carmel. I don't have time to read the whole passage, but Elijah came near to all the people. This is 1821. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, the prophet of the Lord. But the Baal's prophets are 450. They get the two oxen, the one that answers by fire. God glorifies himself in that day. And you have two great ironies here. You know, the Lord is holy, but he also can be sarcastic and, and produce irony uh, for us here. Just the very fact that this is Yahweh calling the nations to war is just like blows the mind, right? We see this divine oracle of rallying the nations. Get, gather all your soldiers, your weak and wimpy soldiers. They don't have a chance. You know what this reminds me of? Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You know what it says then? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at him. It's, it's as though the nations are, are, are it's, it's as though there's a bunch of ants challenging all the nations of the world, the Russian military, the U.S. military, the uh, China's military. We are going to fight against you and we are going to win. Like a friend of mine said in a sermon, ants of the world, let's unite, let's go. Like there's no chance, it's no wonder the Lord scoffs and laughs at that ridiculousness. And then second irony is in verse 10. It's as though he says, Use, bring all your weapons, all your tanks, even your farm tools, right? And it's, it's almost like there is a deliberate reversal of the promise of peace given in the prophet Micah and Isaiah 2.4. Isaiah says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So you have a prophecy of peace, and it's the undoing of that. Take those pruning hooks and those plowshares and make them into swords. Bring all of your weapons against me. Verse 11, haste and come, you all the surrounding nations, and gather yourselves here. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Bring them all here. Psalm 24 and verse 8, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Verse 12 tells us specifically, the nations, let the nations be aroused. 
and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit as judge all the surrounding nations. What we have here is Yahweh is the supreme judge on the battlefield. He assembles all the nations, but all these nations will be... Now, when we say nations, he doesn't judge. It's individuals, right, that make up the nations. But um, the nations will be humbled on that day. It's though prisoners with black and white striped clothing and shackles on their wrists that don't have a chance awaiting their awesome sentence from a holy God. We see God as a mighty warrior and with complete sovereign power. And then verse 13, look at this. Put in a sickle, and the, for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread on the winepress, and full the vats overflow, and the wickedness is great. Verse 13, if we look at it carefully, speaks of a harvest. It speaks of prosperity. It speaks of abundance. Harvest times were what? Joyous times came at the end of a hot summer, harvesting the food to be able to relax throughout the winter. But what's being said here is there is no joy when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to tread out God's wrath. And God's day, the scene of rejoicing, is changed to one of sorrow. The smashing of the grapes speaks of the wickedness which is overflowing. This, this idea of... Uh, that the tread on the wine press is full of vats overflow speaks of the wickedness that is so great. Isaiah 63 says, I've trodden down the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. Jesus uses similar language to the separation of the wheat and the tares, Right? Rescue, before the angels would come and reap, there's a separation that takes place. There's the burning of the tares. So verse 13, it's really a command to the troops. He uses these agricultural metaphors to refer to the idea of an utter bloodbath. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but at the end of Revelation 14, you see similar language a few different places of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. But one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, and the angel called out, put the sickle and reap to the hour of the reapers. Come before the harvest is ripe on the earth. It's a very clear picture of the great and final judgment that would come. And then verse 14 to 17, the, the place and power of this judgment, all the peoples of the earth are gathered. And look at what it says in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now this is a verse that's often taken out of context. Some of you have probably uh, heard it taken out of context. This is not a call for you to make a decision for Christ, to fill out a card or to walk an aisle. It's, it's not that at all. The verse is not intended to be evangelistic, but rather it's the valley of God's decision about each and every one. 
It's, it's the valley of decision, literally, it, it can be translated, the valley of verdict. It's the verdict that's given upon the nations. The nations already made their decision when they persecuted the people of God, and therefore God now in turn will decide about them. And by the way, brethren, the verdict is final. There's no appeals court. And then you see this verse 15. Notice again, we saw that in chapter 2, the sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will lose their brightness. These cataclysmic events that we saw that is a picture of the pouring out of the Spirit and the second coming of Christ. These are the types of things that we are to see. Look at verse 16. He will come forth with awesome power and authority. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble at His holy voice. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold for the sons of Israel. And there again, you have this idea of this roaring, the judgment that comes forth. But for those that are in Christ, those who are trusting Yahweh, He is a refuge. He is a stronghold. See the exact same terminology in Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. Actually, it should just be right on the opposite page. The Lord roars from Zion. It's a battle cry against the enemies who have oppressed His beloved people. And, and even today, we have so many people that are rebellious and shake their fist at God and openly mock Him. And, and they will be humbled on that great day. The Lord brings comfort and security to His people. He, he defends them. It's like the little girl being picked on on the playground and by these other bigger girls. And, and suddenly the big sister comes and says, back off, right? There's a sense in which that takes place here. The Lord is our refuge. He roars from Zion to his enemies, but he's our refuge. It's like Aslan in the Narnia series that some of you have read. He is both fierce, but also safe, right? Beautiful picture. And verse 17, never again will my people be defiled. So, the judgment of the oppressors, the proclamation of judgment in verses 18 to 21. We have the consolation of judgment. We see the prosperity here. Look in verse 18. Then in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will even go out from the house of the Lord, the water in the valley of Shittim. So you have a picture of great prosperity. The pouring out of the Spirit was the spiritual blessings that God would pour out. And here you've got something of the material blessings that are promised that are really primarily spiritual. But when you combine the spiritual and material blessings, it's a double evidence that God is indeed blessing. His divine presence brings fruit and fertility to the land. Even this miraculous water supply also, a picture of Canaan is a picture of heaven itself, Revelation 21. Then he showed me a, the river of life, clear as crystal, coming from the very throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was the, the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. 
And the promise in verse 19, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. What God is saying here is a promise that the, all of these emotional wounds, Judah, that you've gone through, my people, the trauma that you endured from these wicked nations, I will turn and make them desolate and make them to become a waste. Of course, these are also singled out as longtime enemies of God's people, Egypt and Edom. Verses 20 and 21, the permanence of this consolation says, but Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations. It's really the promise of the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Judah has the seal and pledge of God's presence with them forever. It's a great assurance that he will bring his people to God after all other sufferings. In verse 21, I will avenge the blood which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Revelation 6.10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth? Remember the, the souls of those who are under the altar. They're crying out, how long, O Lord? Because of his great patience. Well, a couple points of application as we wrap up. First of all, when... Are these events being spoken of? I want to hammer this home again. It's the already and the not yet. It's the mountain peaks, right, that are yet to come. In a sense, some of these things are already fulfilled. Today, we drink from Christ and the living water. We have the promise of these waters today. Today, we are made full in Christ if you are a Christian. Not perfected and sinless, but you are full Paul tells the Colossians, for in him all the fullness dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. That's good news. If you're in Christ, today we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said of you. Today, we dwell in Mount Zion. We just finished a long exposition of the book of Hebrews in 1222. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem with myriads and myriads of angels. Now, having said all of that, we we still wait for that final and complete fulfillment of God's promises to us when he actually takes us and glorifies us and takes us into his heavenly kingdom. Many of these things are the already, those things that are yet future, the not yet. Secondly, some say that this this last section, verses 18 to 21, speaks of an earthly millennial kingdom. It actually fits sort of well if you take 1 to 17 being the uh, tribulation and then suddenly 18 to 21, a kingdom with earthly prosperity. But most recognize that the language here is figurative. Mountains don't drip with wine, okay? The waters, uh, uh, they're spiritual, even according to Christ. In John chapter 7, he who drinks, right, will never be thirsty again. 
Furthermore, the promise of Joel 3 is not for a thousand years, but it's forever. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, not a limited amount of generations. I just wanted to bring clarity to that. The wonderful blessed hope that we have here that's yet future, the aspects that are yet future, are a great motivation to living faithfully in this perverse world. Someday we will see the end of wicked human governments. It'll be like Edom, desolate wilderness. It gives us great encouragement to persevere in the midst of oppressors upon God's people, upon the persecuted church, and all of that that we have a calling to fulfill to take the gospel to the lost, to be faithful while we still live. And then look at verse 21. I will avenge their blood. God promises to be our avenger, not Captain Marvel of the Marvel movie series, but the holy, thrice holy God promises to be our avenger. And lastly, are you prepared to stand before the judge in the valley of decision? Choose this day whom you will serve. If the Lord be God, serve him. God will actually judge you based on your choice today. And if you say, well, I don't want to decide, you have decided by rejecting God. You will stand in that valley of decision, the valley of verdict. You will hear the verdict read about you. Today, the door of opportunity stands wide open. If you'll but humble yourself and just come to Christ, admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you deserve all of these, all of the things that come upon the wicked. I deserve to have all that laid on me, but Christ was a beautiful substitute and took all of that upon himself, all of the Father's just wrath against sin, and poured it out on his own Son, unmitigated anger and fierce wrath upon Jesus Christ. Then he was dead, he rose from the dead, he's ascended to heaven, he is our great high priest, and there he intercedes for his people. He is a beautiful and a wonderful Savior. Why would you not want to come to him? Well, people love their pleasure. They love their sin. They'd rather trade a child to have a bottle of wine. You know, uh, they, they just they don't want to let go. They, they want to be the captain of their own destiny, right? This individualism that we have that America has, has, has really built up and, and put into a lot of people. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to submit to any authority. And when you're told that you have to repent, you have to turn from your sin, and come to Christ. They don't want any part of that. I pray that that's not true for you today. You will stand in that valley of verdict, and God will judge you based on your decision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for this book, and so many strong warnings that are here, and um, things to really truly consider. And I pray, Lord, that you would have your way with each and every one of us pray for especially the one that does not know you, that today might be the day of salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.